we're at. I love the fact that we got to start the service off with a testimony about Lisa and her getting to experience the baptism of joy. Listen, this is something I've been building up next week at the end of service next week. We're going to finish the series and I'm going to pray for every person in this house to receive the baptism of joy. And it's going to be awesome because everybody's going to be happy and smiling and there's just going to be joy and gladness in this house. And it's not going to be the little happiness where you're happy and then you have a bad lunch and you're no longer happy. It's going to be the perpetual joy of the Lord. Listen, I know that you walk out of church and everything's great and you get the worst waiter on the face of the earth and it's like... Lord, listen, we went to a restaurant here in Cleveland. I will not name or disclose the location, but I told Faith when we left, I said, I will never go back there again as long as I live. That was the worst experience, the worst food, and the worst waitress I've ever had in my life. I still tipped her, but I didn't want to. (laughs) I'm just being honest. I still tipped her, but I didn't want to. (laughs) Don't ask, because I won't tell you. Don't ask, because I won't tell you. Ask Faith. She might. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, Lord, it's good to laugh in church, isn't it? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, so the scripture verse that's been the theme of our series that we've been walking through has been Hebrews 1, 9. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, and it says this. It says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And if you go to one of the more modern translations, it would say something like this. You have loved righteousness and hated it lawlessness. Therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or the oil of joy above your companions. So the point I'm making is that there, this verse, no matter which translation you read it in, it's setting up two dynamics it sets up a scale the first half of the verse is the conditions the second half of the verse is the consequence you meet the conditions you experience the consequence you don't meet the conditions you don't experience the consequence i've told you guys multiple times every prophecy in scripture every blessing every promise has an if or a because factor attached to it if you do this i'll do this because you did this i'm going to do this every single one search the scriptures and you'll find that this is the case but i thank god that in the new covenant i don't have to meet those conditions That was a good place for you to say amen, church. I thank God that in the new covenant, in the better covenant, in the covenant of Jesus Christ, I don't have to meet those conditions. He met them for me. Amen. Jesus died so that I don't have to. Jesus was perfect so that I don't have to be. Jesus fulfilled the law so that I don't have to. I thank God that I don't have to meet those conditions or those those conditions. I get to experience the consequence of his promise and his praise and his blessing because of what he did. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is. It's not about what I do. It's about what he did. Amen. We, we talk about the imperatives of scripture a lot. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. But a whole lot more important is the indicatives. What's true just because it's true. And that's what God did because of who he is. Amen. That's good. That's good. But here's the rub because there's always a rub. There's always, well, what's the What's the crux, you know? (laughs) What's the caveat? What's the holdup? Here's the rub. Are you ready for it? You have to appropriate that by faith. You have to appropriate that in your own life. Jesus did the hard work. Now all you have to do is partner with the Holy Spirit and through faith appropriate what He did into your life. That's the woman with the three measures of meal. The first measure represents the spirit. The second measure represents the soul. And the third measure represents the body. And she takes that leaven, which according to the chapter is faith, and she appropriates that or works that in to each one of those measures. You have to take the faith and you have to work it into your spirit. You have to take the faith and you have to work it into your soul, which is your mind, will, your intellect, your emotions, your imagination, your conscience. You have to work it in. And then you have to take it and you have to work it into your physical body. 
People are like, why am I healed? not healed, God? Why am I not healed, God? Well, there's a lot of different possibilities, but one possibility is we haven't worked in the faith the way that we're supposed to. And we keep asking, but we don't give thanks. We keep asking, but we'll ask God for healing, and then we'll turn around and say, I'm not healed. We keep asking God for one thing, and then we turn around and we say, I don't have it. Well, do you believe you have it, or do you not believe you have it? See, one of the things, and Cahill says this all the time, but one of the things that he said that just absolutely rocked my world, a couple of weeks ago he was preaching and he said, how many of you were healed with, of cancer? And a couple of people raised their hand. He said, how many of you were healed of diabetes? And a couple of people raised their hand. How many of you were healed of arthritis? And a couple more people raised their hand. And he said, the problem is, is that you have not raised your hand. It's like, well, I've never dealt with cancer. It doesn't matter. You were healed of cancer 2,000 years ago. I've never dealt with arthritis. It doesn't matter. You were healed of arthritis 2,000 years ago. You were healed when Jesus paid the penalty for that on the cross and died to relieve us and deliver us from the curse of the law. When he became a curse that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law, for as it is written, curses every man that hangs on the tree. When that was fulfilled, you were healed of cancer, whether you ever get it or not. That's good news. That's good news. But the problem is, is you have to then take that and appropriate that into your life. You have to appropriate into your spirit, that's salvation. You have to appropriate into your soul, that's part, part of what we're talking about with the oil of gladness. And you have to appropriate that into your physical body to experience the healing that God has for you. Amen? So the journey that we've been on is not a legalistic journey of how we can love righteousness and how we can hate iniquity. It's not like you've got to do this, you don't got to do this. It's about what Jesus has done and how we can partner with the Holy Spirit to appropriate that finished work on the cross into our life. Amen? And so I've given you guys points each week of the journey. I've given you points. What was the first point? Does anybody remember? It was identity. Identity. Knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. Knowing that you are made righteous by faith. You do not become righteous because you do righteous things. I've said this constantly. People are not sinners because they sin. People sin because they are sinners. It's from the inside out. The same truth holds people are not righteous because they do a whole bunch of righteous things. People do righteous things because they have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. See, the other way, the way we try to do it and teach it in churches, do this, don't do this, is we're trying to tape oranges to apple trees. We're trying to work from the outside in. We're trying to tape oranges to apple trees and say, well, here's an orange tree. And it's like, no, it's still an apple tree. Those oranges are not going to survive. It's not going to sustain. You may do a good work here and there, but if the inside of you has not been cleansed and purified and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit that is appropriating what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you are not going to sustain that life of good works. That's why people come into Christianity. They get overwhelmed by the law, the rules, the morals, the legalism, the religion that we preach. And then they walk out because they can't do it because they haven't experienced the gospel and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to change their identity. And we preach you have to do this rather than this was done for you. So the first point is identity, knowing that you are righteous because of what Jesus Christ did and because of what the Holy Spirit has transformed in your heart and that you are kept righteous because of what Jesus did. You are kept righteous by faith because that's another distinction. We say that you're saved by faith, but now you've got to keep it by good works. That's not true. That's not true. You do not maintain your righteousness by good works. You maintain your righteousness by faith. You maintain your righteous identity by faith. Amen? The second point was communication. The second point was communication. And I've told you guys, just like I was saying a minute ago about healing, James says this. He says, with the same mouth, 
Bless we God, even the Father, and curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God the Father. Out of the same mouth proceeded forth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. The point is, is that we are giving a divided front. And James says in the first chapter, he says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And what we've been doing is we have been showing the fruits of a double mind because we've had a double mouth. That's a good word. We've had the fruits of a double mind because we've been operating according to a double mouth. Proverbs 19 tells us this. It says that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. And what we have been doing is we have been operating in a whole lot of death. We've been operating in a whole lot of death. And what God is wanting us to do is he is wanting us to move into life. What did Jesus say? He said, the thief comes or the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. God is not wanting us to exist and operate in the arena of death. He's wanting us to move into the arena of life. That's why I thank God that the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. If you don't get anything else, get that. The crucifixion comes before the resurrection. See, a lot of ministries, they operate in the crucifixion. And they operate in the cross. And there's nothing wrong. I preach the cross of Jesus Christ every time I open up my mouth. But I don't leave it there. We operate in the crucifixion and the cross. And we stay on Calvary. And we stay where there's blood and there's death and there's pain and there's agony and there's judgment and there's wrath and there's sin and there's death and there's consequence and there's punishment. But that's not where the story ends. The story moves to the third day. There's a resurrection. And then to 40 days later, there's a Pentecost. The story doesn't end at Calvary. It starts there. And it carries from Calvary to the resurrection and then to the spirit of Pentecost. And Jesus wants us to exist in the resurrection and the spirit of Pentecost. Do we forget about the cross? No. We thank God for the cross, but we remember that that is the beginning of the story and God is taking us from death into life, from darkness into light, from the mud and the miry clay to a solid rock. Amen? That's communication. Then the next point was repentance. And repentance is about putting off of those things. And remember, I told you guys this, that people have preached repentance in one of three ways throughout the history of the church. They have preached that repentance is putting off sin. And you'll hear this, repent or you're going to hell. People standing on the street corners with picket signs and bullet fences and waving their flags saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. That's not of Jesus. I'm telling you right now, that is not of Jesus. That behavior is not of Jesus. That is not Holy Ghost inspired. That's hate inspired. I don't care if they're using Bible verses. It's hate. And Jesus operates according to faith and love. That's why Paul says in Galatians, Now circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith which worketh by love. That's not love. It's hate. So it's not working according to the Holy Spirit. But they keep doing that. That's hate. That's hate. And that's one way that repentance has been preached throughout the history of the church is people talk about putting off sin, putting off sin, putting off sin. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But the other way that repentance has been preached is doing a 180. You're going north, turn around and go south. We've all heard repentance preached that way. You were headed down the wrath to hell. You were going to bust the gates of hell wide open and now you've turned around and now you're headed on the holy way or the highway of holiness or the Romans road and you're on your way to heaven. And people have preached it as doing a 180. I've heard, I heard a preacher one time say, repentance is doing a 360. And I'm like, but that would leave you facing the same direction you started. <laughs> like, like, I don't, your math ain't mathing. Like, anyway, <laughs> repentance is, it might be doing a 180. It's definitely not doing a 360. But, but then the third way is people have talked about repentance as being a change of mind. 
right? It was black, now I see it as white. It was white, now I see it as black. People have talked about repentance as a change of mind. And the truth is a lot greater than any one of those three. Repentance is not less than any one of those three, but it's much greater than those three. Repentance is actually a paradigm shift. It's not thinking it was black and now it's white or it was white and now it's black. It's actually moving to a whole new realm of thinking and say, what's well, not black or white? It's blue, green, yellow, purple, indigo, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. These are the colors of the rainbow. Like it's moving away from the white and black, moving into a different sphere of thinking. It's rivaled to like a birthing moment. You guys seen the cartoon where somebody's trying to figure something out and then all of a sudden the little light bulb goes bing. You know what I'm talking about? The epiphany moment. That's what repentance is. The metanoia, that's, that's like the weight that it carries. Is It's a paradigm-shifting epiphany moment. When you repent, what God is doing is He is letting the little light bulb go off over your head and highlighting the Scripture and saying, hey, there's a little something we need to talk about. And what He's wanting to do is bring you through a spiritual birthing process so that you can be in a position to receive God's best. We taught repentance the wrong way. Repentance in the life of a Christian is not about putting off sin or you're going to hell. No, my sin's paid for. I'm on my way to heaven. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Repentance for a Christian is about a paradigm shift in our way of thinking. That God is wanting to reveal things to us because He wants us to move into greater heights and depths of glory. That's what repentance is in the life of a Christian. He's showing you something, and he's wanting you to move in that so that you can be conformed to the image of Christ and grow more and more like Jesus Christ every day and walk, coincidentally, in more and more power and greater and greater blessings. That's, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in being more like Jesus and walking in more of what he walked in. And he promised that to me. He said, the things that I do and the works that I do, you will do also and even greater works because I go to the Father. That's John 14, 12. That's what he wants for you. But repentance is a necessary part of the process. And I told you guys that repentance is a lot like giving birth. It's not a pleasant experience. I've seen the looks on people's faces, or a woman's face. I've seen the look on a woman's face when she gave birth, and it was not the most pleasant facial expression I've ever seen in my life. Like, I'm glad that she didn't break my hand during that process. Like, it's not fun. It's not convenient. It's not something like, oh, it's a Tuesday. I think I'll go give birth. Like, no. no. Like, it's a painful, traumatic process, but the end is life and life more abundantly. If you negate that or try to subvert that process, it always ends in death. Someone or something dies or multiple people die if you try to abort or negate the birthing process. That's what repentance is. But because of the pain that the repentance process brings, we sometimes shy away from that. And we try to choose momentary content or momentary satisfaction. And what we do is we build up barriers to prevent us from walking in the baptism of joy or the oil of gladness. We bar ourselves from walking in the joy of the Lord because we refuse to repent. Then the next point in your notes was or sanctification. And I talked to you guys about sanctification. And here's a confession. Before I get into sanctification, we talked about cultivating faith. But here's a confession. How many of you guys are lifelong learners? Like, I want to learn. I don't want to get to the place where I have, feel like I have arrived. My entire ministry, I have preached that sanctification has four components and eight phases. You guys have heard me say that, right? 
that sanctification is sin, Savior, um, service, and spirit, and then the eight phases that it's pre-regenerate, that it's positional, that there's the phenomenal, that there's the point, that there's the pneuma, then there's the practical, then there's the progressive, and then there's the permanent phases of sanctification. I've preached that. Eight phases, four components, four arenas, eight phases. I will tell you this, this past week I was reading in my Bible reading plan, I was reading in Exodus, and the Holy Spirit said, you're wrong. Sanctification doesn't have four arenas it operates in, it has five. And I was like, it was Exodus 8.21, Exodus 8.21, and it says this, the Lord says, and I will set apart the land of Goshen. It's where the Israelites were dwelling. And they, here you go, If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of... Back up. Back up. Maybe it's Exodus 20. Ah, That translation is a little bit odd. Let me find it right here. I want to share this with you. I want to share this. (laughs) 22. 22. Wow. Okay. Should have double-checked myself. Hey, I'm human too. I will sever in that day the land of Goshen. The King James says sever. I don't know what the NIV says, but the New King James says I will set apart the land of Goshen. And the phraseology right there carries the same connotation as sanctification in being set apart. And what I began to realize through what the Holy Spirit was communicating to me is that there's a fifth arena of sanctification, and it's called safety. There's a fifth arena of sanctification, and it's called safety, that God sets you apart for safety, for protection. And that's good. Because that, what's that let, what that lets me know is if in the days of the Egyptians, in the days of the ten plagues, when there's flies and there's locusts and there's boils and there's water being turned to the blood and there's cattle dying and there's hail coming and fires and darkness and the death of the firstborn and all of these chaotic events happening, Every time you see an instruction or provision or protection from God to the children of Israel so that they could be spared from the plague. Every time. And what that let me know is that even though the world may be chaotic, people talk about how bad the world is. The world is supposed to be bad. It's the world. Like all that's in it is the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. It's going to be bad. Quit expecting the world to not be bad. It's the world. The spirit of the world is the devil. What do you expect? It's going to be bad. The problem is that the church just looks just like the world a lot of times, and we're supposed to walk in a higher realm and a higher plane of living. That's the problem. And we don't believe half of the promises that God has spoken over us, so we don't walk in them. You've got to believe before you can walk. Now, the reason I bring this up is because even though the world is bad, even though the world is chaotic, there's an arena of sanctification that says, I don't have, the world can be dealing with chaos and turmoil and wars and rumors of wars and there can be famine and there can be this and I can be protected. See, we, we talk about this and we're like, well, there's a food shortage or, you know, COVID-19 or, you know, there's a potential war or this or that and it's like, I'm, I'm protected. Like, I'm set apart so that I can be protected and dwell in the shadow of the Most High. You know, He can hide me under the cover of His hand. He can hide me under the shadow of His wing. We just sang that. Like, I can be protected. So we need to remind ourselves that safety is a very real part of the sanctification process that God wants to work in our life. And then finally, last week, we moved into consecration or the anointing. Consecration or the anointing, and that was the spirit portion of sanctification, the filling of the hand. And when we talked about the anointing, we went through the five different phases of the anointing or five different 
really more just things that we were observing about the anointing. And the first was the presence of the anointing. And I told you guys how that when God anoints you, he doesn't just abstractly or transcendently give you a telephone call and say, hey, you're anointed to do this. He doesn't just pour it out on your head. A lot of times we feel like that, like it's just being poured out. There's an aspect of the pouring, but it goes further than that because the root of that Hebrew word carries the connotation of smearing. And I told you guys that the reason that that is so beautiful and that God smears the anointing in is because I can give somebody a telephone call and it not affect me personally. My person, I just give them a telephone call, give them some instructions, send a text message, send an email and forget about it. I can pour oil out and it not get on me. But if I go to smear it in, the oil is on me and on them. And what God communicates to us through that is that when He invites you into the oil of gladness, He's not just giving you joy. He's not just pouring gladness on you. He is inviting you to an intimate participation in His joy. That's why Ezra says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not my joy in the Lord is our strength. No, the joy of the Lord. His joy that He invites me to participate in and smears that together so that we have this beautiful He's joyous, I'm joyous, I'm joyous in him he delights in me therefore delivers me and we have this beautiful harmony of joy mutually exchanged in his presence that's what we talk about when we talk about the presence of the anointing and then we talk about the power of the anointing and i told you guys if you didn't take anything at all from last week's message you should take this that jesus when he had fasted for 40 days when he was out in the wilderness and didn't have a beautiful, expensive Tempur-Pedic mattress and a several hundred dollar pillow to lay his head on, when he didn't have any of those provisions to sleep. So he was tired, he was hungry, he was out with the wolves and in the weather so he didn't have any security or safety from the elements or from the beast. He was at his weakest and lowest point. And when he was at his weakest and lowest point, he went three rounds with Satan and knocked his two front teeth in. And you, because of the anointing, no matter what state you're in, no matter how weak you feel, can still go three rounds with the devil and kick his behind in. Amen? That's a good preaching point. You, no matter what you're dealing with, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's sickness in the body, whether it's um, emotional turmoil, whether it's a spiritual issue, no matter what you're dealing with, because of the power of the anointing that is available to every born-again believer, you can go three rounds with Satan and still whoop his hind in. That's a good preaching point. You can preach back, Judge. You can say, amen, I can go three rounds with Satan and I can whoop his hind in. I'll say whoop his hind in until somebody says amen. <laughs> Thank you. Hallelujah. 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 Or rather until I hear somebody say amen. How about that? All right. <laughs> And then uh, the third point was the purpose, but I skipped that because I wanted to. I could have moved it to the fifth point. I don't know why I didn't. I just left it at the third point. But then the purity of the anointing that God anoints you. People operate with anointed gifts all the time. That's why people get up and they preach the gospel and they no more have the spirit of God in them than the man on the moon. Because the gift is without repentance. The gift and the calling of God is without repentance. He gives you the gift, you operate in it. That's why you see these preachers up here and they have these great extramarital affairs and they have these huge falls and then somebody commits suicide or you know all this and you're like, wait a second, their ministry was so powerful because God gave them the gift. It, the gift was anointed, but they weren't. But God doesn't want to just anoint your gift. He doesn't want you to just have cool stuff. He wants you to have Him. 
that God wants to anoint you. That's why when Jesus quotes the scripture, you know, it says this, it says, and then he returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee and the news of him went throughout all the surrounding regions and he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. And then it moves in and he says, he went to Nazareth, the place where he had been brought up. And he, as his custom was, stood up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to read. And they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's upon me, not upon my gift. It's upon me. And then he moves on and he says, because the spirit of the Lord is upon me, that's the purity of the anointing. It's on me. It's not on my gift. It's on me. So therefore, any gift I operate in has the anointing because it's on me. Listen, if I'm dripping with oil and I pick up my iPad, my iPad's going to get oil on it. The problem is, is if my iPad has it, then I, I may get some, I may not. You see the difference? The other aspect of the purity is that it's always according to the Word of God. That's the filter. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. He doesn't, a lot of people get in trouble because they're trying to operate in this charismatic fanaticism and they get away from the Word of God. Don't get away from the Word of God. Everything is confined and orchestrated, a built upon the Word of God. This is the Word that God has spoken to you. Everything that He has is necessary for life and godliness is found right here in the Word of God. You don't need to build some great other theology outside the Word of God. In fact, if you do that, it'll be like a house built upon sand, and anytime a storm comes, it's going to fall apart. But if you build it upon the Word of God, it's going to stand. Amen? And then we talked about the pleasure of the anointing and cultivating what the things that make us happy. And the purpose, of course, of the five points of the purpose of the anointing was to deal with the five arenas of our life. Spirit, soul, or spiritually, mentally, physically, socially, and financially. That's brought us to where we're at now. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? That was a good recap. Good introduction. Now we'll start preaching. All right. The point that I wanted to move into from Hebrews 1.9 it says, above thy fellows. Next week, we're going to talk about the oil of gladness. But it said, above thy fellows, or above thy companions, or distinct from your companions. So it's like it takes this aspect of the social realm and pulls it out separate because there's a lot of things that need work in this arena. Listen, ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. <laughs> <laughs> my, pa- my pastor says people will put the fun in dysfunction okay <laughs> like, <laughs> you guys didn't get that quick enough hallelujah <laughs> you put the fun in dysfunction hallelujah hallelujah no I'm serious if I got problems and you got problems and we get together there's a whole lot of problems hallelujah but the adverse is true you got promises you got blessing you got anointing I got blessing I got anointing I got promises we get together there's a whole lot of blessing anointing and promises but we always like to focus on the negative don't we let's get away from that let's start focusing on the positive what God wants to do what God has done we need to move the Christianity needs to move away from negativity good Lord it needs to move away from negativity (laughs) amen so in that purpose of the anointing last week i talked to you about the anointing moving in the realm of the social sphere your relationship with other people all right and we talked about a few things but i want to focus in on that a little bit more i want to focus in on that a little bit more so psalm 133 psalm 133 says this it says behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity it's like the oil that's poured out upon the head and flows down into the beard even aaron's beard and then on down to the hems of his garments it is like the dew upon mount hermon 
descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded his blessing, even life forevermore. That's Psalm 133. It's one of my favorite psalms in all of Scripture, mainly because when I got Christian, I was like, hey, my name, my middle name is Aaron. This is about Aaron. Hallelujah. It's about me, you know. Anyway, (laughs) Psalm 133. I'm going to give you guys some points, and I told you that for the sake of memorization and note-taking, I'm going to start working with alliterations a lot more. So today, you're going to listen for the F word. Come on, come on. Are you set your halo in the seat next to you? You can laugh a little bit. You can laugh a little bit. Not that F word. If you ever hear me say that F word, we might have an issue. But you're going to be listening for words that start with F. And we're going to begin this off with focus. Your first word, focus. The psalm starts off and it says, behold, behold. Now, if I tell you, hey, behold, like that's a point of exclamation. Hopefully I don't say that and sound like I'm from 1511. But like... (laughs) behold like it's, it's a point of exclamation like you need to look at this there's a guy on youtube i don't some of his stuff is kind of weird but his name was ed bassmaster and for the longest time he did these these youtube videos and he would say he would say nothing else except look at it would you look at it and say would you look at it? would you just look at it he got went to go inquire about buying a car from a, a gentleman And the only phrase that he would use in the entire conversation is look at it. And then he would do little additives. So the guy was trying to explain the card. He's like, would you just look at it? Would you just look at it? And he said, yeah, I bought it from this guy. And he said, well, I wish he was here so he could just look at it. Would you just look at it? And that's all he said, the entire thing. And finally, the guy, you could just see his, his levels rising and like his skin turning shades of red. But it's hilarious to watch because he finds the most creative and ignorant ways to say look at it. (laughs) And so not like Ed Bassmaster, but the Holy Spirit is highlighting something. He's saying, look at this. This is important. And what I want you to understand about what the anointing wants to do in your social sphere is the anointing, the Holy Spirit wants to give you a whole new way to look at relationships. If you can't say amen to that, we've got issues. Like you must be holier than me and every relationship you're in must be like flipping daisies through the wind and everybody, you don't have any EGRs, extra grace required people. You're good. Everybody delights you. Everybody, it's like walking through a meadow. You're just like holding the hands, going to get coffee. Like you don't have any problem people. If you cannot say, Holy Spirit, I want a new way to look at people, then you are holier than me and I want to know how you do it because I have to ask Jesus to borrow his face all the time. I'm serious. I've talked to you guys about psychology and about how your subconscious scans its environment six times every second looking for faces that find it accepting and are inviting and are showing approval. Six times every second. And so when I go into a conversation with somebody that I don't like, or maybe I do like them and I do love them, but they just grind my nerves. Because there are people that do things that just bother me, that just annoy me. And I have to ask Jesus, I don't want them to receive negativity and hate from me or frustration or irritation. So can I borrow your face for a second? Because you delight in them. You love them. You accept them. You enjoy their nonsense. Can I, just, can I just borrow your face for a second so that we can have this conversation and that we can move on and everybody's affirmed and everybody's encouraged? I'm serious. So I'm asking God, give me a whole new way to look at people. And I'll tell you this. I tell you this, I received the baptism of the, or the anointing of the oil of gladness, the baptism of joy, several months back. And it has been an ever increasing ride. 
like there are new phases into this as the further that I go in that just open my eyes. And a couple weeks ago, it's been like two weeks ago, we had some, some turmoil and it just, it just was like, I was seeing people in a new light and I was, I actually had a conversation with faith and I was like, that's the old man. I don't see them that way anymore. I see them according to the new man. The old man is a corrupt according to deceitful lust. That man's dead. And let me tell you something. There's only one resurrection in the New Testament God doesn't approve of, and it's the resurrection of the old man. That man is dead, and they have been renewed according to the spirit of their mind, and they are a new person created after God in righteousness and true holiness, and I am going to choose to see them. They're acting outside of character. That's not who they are. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm, it's not that I'm going to shirk away and I'm not going to bring correction and have those conversations when necessary because Jesus doesn't shy away from sin and away from problems, but what I'm going to choose to do is I'm going to look at those as oranges taped on an apple tree. They're an apple tree. They're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Those are some oranges that don't belong there. And so we're going we're gonna to address that by encouraging their identity and telling them we know who they are, and that's contrary to who they are. That's a whole new way to look at people. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, is He wants to give you a new way to let you love people with God's love, to let you forgive people with God's forgiveness, to help you accept people with God's acceptance, to help you bless people and pray for people the way that God would do it. That's something I'm really, really interested in because sometimes it can be hard when someone hurts you and someone talks about you and someone lies about you and someone beats up on you to everybody around you to look at them and say, no, I forgive you. I love you. I'm praying for you. It's a whole new way to see people. Now, I will tell you this, and I preached this last week, and I've preached it several months back, but just because you love people, just because you forgive them, just because you bless them, does not mean that you have to be BFFs and write that you love them on your notebook and go out to coffee every Tuesday. That's not what that means. What that means is that you love them, you bless them, and you can say, I'm praying for you, and I pray that you're blessed for success over here, and I want to live my life over here. There are different operations and different ministries, and there's three categories of people in your life. There are seasonal soldiers, there are evil infiltrators, and there are permanent dwellers. And I told you guys that a seasonal soldier is like Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. They never had any intention of inheriting the promised land on the east side of the Jordan. However, they walked across that river when it was parted. They walked through that, they fought all those battles, and then after the victory was won, they went back to their inheritance on the west side. That's a seasonal soldier. They weren't bad. They weren't evil. They weren't wicked. They didn't do anything wrong, but they were only supposed to be there for a season. And there are people like that in your life. They're going to walk into your life and be there for a season. It's going to be great. And God's going to call them elsewhere or call you elsewhere or call you guys to two different things, two different functions. And there's distance and your relationship will change and it won't be the same. And that's okay because God has blessed that. But if you try to keep a seasonal soldier past the end of that season you or them will become an evil infiltrator one of you will and i say you or them because we have all the time in the world adam and eve blame game it was that woman's fault it was that snake's fault we all the time it's somebody else we didn't it's blame game but it can be you too you can become the evil infiltrator if you try to keep a seasonal soldier past their time an evil infiltrator is from galatians chapter one or Galatians chapter 2, I'm sorry, and that's when Paul says that 
there were people that came into us unaware. They crept in unaware. They infiltrated our midst that they might spy out the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus so that they could bring us again into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not even for a minute. Not even for a minute. We didn't give them the time of day because we knew what they were about. That's evil infiltrators. There will be people that Satan will send. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a person. I know we talk about it being a spirit. We talk about it being a sickness. No, the Old Testament talks about the promised land. If they don't get rid of the Canaanites, the people that dwelled before them, that they would become thorns in their flesh. When Paul, he's very versed in Scripture, he talks about a thorn in the flesh. He's talking about a principality that's stirring up people to go in opposition against him. It's a thorn in the flesh. It's people. Like I said, ministry is easy if there weren't people. You add people, it's the hardest thing in the world. It's a thorn in his flesh. People. People. That's evil infiltrators. Satan will send them. Sometimes they're good people, but you guys just don't sharpen each other. You dull each other. <laughs> you keep sharpening a knife past the point, a certain point and sharpen it the wrong way. Eventually it starts working in an adverse manner. Sometimes we get past the point of being able to sharpen one another and we start dulling one another. And those people are, it's fine. Just separate. That's okay. It's okay. You are not, you do not have the mental bandwidth to be best friends with everybody. In fact, your inner circle probably needs to be pretty small. Probably needs to be pretty small. And then moving from that, moving from that, you have the permanent dwellers. And that's people, the other tribes of Israel, they went in, they inherited the promised land, and they dwelt together. There are people that God's going to bring into your life, and they're supposed to be there for the long haul. But we need the Holy Spirit's power to help us see people as who they are, blessed of the Lord, redeemed of the Lord. And Christians can be chaos. I'm just telling you. Christians can be chaos. If you walk into a church... Excuse me. You walk into a church thinking that everybody's going to be okay and everybody's going to be nice and the things you read about Scripture, they're going to follow every single one of those commandments. <laughs> You're in for a rude awakening, sweetheart. Like, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. People are messed up. <laughs> they they still, they still trying to decide whether they want to go through that birthing process of repentance or not. So anyway, anyway. We'll move on from that. So the first point was focus, and that moves you into the arena of family, beginning to see that we are all members one of another, that we are all family in Christ Jesus, that we need each other. We may not need to be locked in elbows, skipping down the street together, but we need each other. Every single person and every single part of the body needs one another. Christ is the head of whom the whole body fitly framed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, make it increase unto the body of the edifying of itself of love. Like, we need one another. We need to come together. That's why Paul uses the body illustration so much in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 3, in Ephesians 4. He, then he capitalizes on it in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. He continually refers back to this concept of us being one in Christ Jesus because we are family. We are family. Now, if you know anything about family, you understand one thing. You don't like all your family members the same. They're still family. You're still related. You're still part of the same bloodline, but you don't like each other the same. But that doesn't mean that you're not family. doesn't mean that you're not family. Now, the beautiful thing about Christianity is family is about whose blood you have, and in Christianity, we all have the blood of Christ, and so that makes us family. 
That makes us family. That makes us one. That unites us. That's why I love what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2 when he says, the blood, you who are sometimes afar off are brought nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace who hath torn down the wall of partition that was between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity. And then he goes on. Like that idea of Christ tearing down racial barriers. Think about Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free, rich nor poor. There's nothing. All are one in Christ Jesus. We're all the children of God through Christ Jesus. We're all the sons and daughters of Abraham. Like that whole idea of us coming together as one, needing each other, not looking at one another and saying, I'm more valuable in the kingdom than you because I can preach better. Or you saying, I'm more valuable in the kingdom because I have more to give. I'm more valuable in the kingdom because I can sing better. Or I can lead worship. Like all of those things need to go out the window. And we need to realize no matter how seemingly, and I say seemingly, insignificant someone else's contribution is, they are necessary to the body of Christ. Otherwise, God wouldn't have them there. And if you say you're not necessary, someone comes to this church and you say you're not necessary, what you're saying is, God, I know better than you. God, I know better than you. They can't possibly bring anything to this church. God, they can't possibly. They don't have the gifts. They don't, we need them for this. We need this. And you, we, need, we need a children's church minister. I'm giving examples. And you brought us a piano player. Like, that's not necessary. No. And see what the church has done for so long is we do like what's called plug and play. And we're like, well, you can tolerate kids and you passed your background check. So guess who's our new children's church director? It's like, no, I want the people that are anointed for the position. And just because God brings you and the position isn't there yet doesn't mean that you're not needed. It means that God is bringing you, He's going to birth something in you, and you're going to be the one that creates that position. Like, there is a necessary component to this. If you're here and God has called you to this house, it's because this house and this ministry needs you. We're family. Amen? And that will take us to the third point, which is freedom. Freedom. Hallelujah. Does anybody else need some freedom? Freedom. Proverbs 29.25 says that the fear of man is as a snare. And we always quote that. But let me ask you a question. Before you put the Scripture up there, because I know what you're getting ready to do. Before you put the Scripture up there, can anyone tell me the second half of that verse? Everyone else, everyone in here just about, I could say the fear of man is like a, and you would finish it for me. Just about. If you've been in church for any length of time, you'd finish it for me. You'd say, the fear of man, it's like a snare. But can you tell me the second half of that verse? Mm -mm. Close, close. He that trusts in the Lord will be safe. The fear of man is a snare, but he that trusts in the Lord will be safe. See, there's that component of safety. He that trusts in the Lord will be safe. Look at, look at this. Think about this. Let me, let me talk to you just a little bit about what a snare trap is. You got any hunters? Anybody hunt? Anybody know what a snare trap is? A snare trap, the most comical kind, is you see in cartoons, and I, I, well, I like cartoons, so I make cartoon references a lot. You got this little rope, and it looks like a noose laying on the ground. That's what it looks like. It's like a, a, in a little circle, and it's got a rope attached to it. And someone walks along, you know, nonchalantly, you know, I don't know. We talked about what chalant is. We talked about people being nonchalant, so what's chalant? And Frank had to begin that investigation. Just like we talked about it, what we're overwhelmed, but what's it mean to be whelmed? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's just for you, Frank. Just for you. Just for you. Hallelujah. And praise God in church. But 
you got this person walking around casually, minding their own business. They step in that, and then instantly what happens? They're swung up, and they're hanging upside down. That's the most common picture of a snare trap. Basically what it is, is it catches them around the leg or around the neck or somewhere, but it doesn't kill them. But it keeps them limited. They can't get to where they were going. Come on, that's a, they can't get to where they were going. They can't get to safety, to refuge. They can't get nothing to eat. They can't get nothing to drink. Their life has now become boxed in by the limits of that snare. The fear of man is a snare. It sets a framework. It doesn't kill you. But what it does is it creates a border around your life and says you can go here, but you can't go here. And let me, let me tell you this. I can tell you whether or not you, you're subject to the fear of man. You get ready to go somewhere. You put on an outfit. What will they think of this? What will they think of this? I want to preach this message. What would they think of this? What would they think of that? I want to go watch this movie. What would they think? Not what God would think. That's a different conversation entirely, but what would they think? What would they say if they found out that I watched The Office? I watched The Office. I don't like all the episodes. Some of the episodes I skip entirely, but I like The Office. It's funny. <laughs> I mean, it just is. But what would they think if they found out that I watched this Downton Abbey and had to skip two episodes? What would, they, what would they think if they found that out? What would they think if this happened or this happened? How about this one? You stand in front of the mirror and you look at the size of your ear. Well, Cindy Lou Who said I had big ears in the third grade. My ears are, aren't that big, are they? That's the fear of man too because now you have gotten a border or a bondage on you from something someone said decades ago. Someone said that I couldn't preach. Someone said I shouldn't dress like this. Someone said that if I don't wear a suit, I'm out of uniform. Someone said this. Someone said that. Someone said this. That's fear of man getting its grip on you. It's a snare. It's trying to limit the reach and the influence of your life and your ministry. And every single person here has a ministry. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your calling is. There is nothing, no such thing as secular and sacred. In New Covenant and the covenant that God has established for us in Christ Jesus, everything is sacred. Everything is to be done to the glory and the praise of God. And you were called out of darkness into His marvelous light that you could show forth the praises of Him who called you. Like you are a minister of the gospel. Just because you don't stand by no pulpit doesn't mean anything. And the snare wants to prevent you from having the fullest reach that your ministry can have. And so then it says those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord. Because there's always going to be people who come and saying you can't dress like that. And the Lord says, I called you to what I called you to. It's one of my favorite examples. And I always tell this to new ministers, people that are called to ministry. Do not wear Saul's armor. Do not wear Saul's armor. David had a specific calling. If he'd have went out against Goliath with Saul's armor on, he'd have been dead, and that story wouldn't be in our Scripture. But he had to put Saul's armor on, realize this isn't what God's called me to, this isn't for me, and he had to move out into his identity and who God's called him to be. If he'd have operated in the fear of man and not the trust of the Lord, his whole life trajectory would have been shortened and would have been different. Don't wear Saul's armor. Don't operate according to the fear of man. There is freedom in the Lord and the Holy Spirit wants to bring freedom to us. The next point is filling. 
filling. It says it's like the precious oil that's poured out upon the head. Who is our head? It's Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, everything we receive flows through Jesus Christ who is the incarnate Word of God. That's why I say the Holy Spirit will always operate according to the confines of Scripture because it's the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will always operate according to the Word of God. And so the Holy Spirit will always work in accordance with Christ Jesus. That's why He's identified as the Spirit of Christ. He will always work through Christ Jesus. And then it flows down to the beard, even Aaron's beard. And the reason for this distinction is because it's showing that the Holy Spirit flows to Christ, through Christ, and down into the leadership of the church. Down into the leaders of the church. Now here's the caveat. I have a beard. If I shave it off and it's laying in the floor, who's going to point at it and say a beard? Nobody. It's just hair. What gives it its identity? It being attached to the head. People are not leaders in church if they lose their attachment to the head. Now they're just hair. They're just hair. And so I'm not talking about those leaders that are straight out. I'm not talking about those people that are wackadoos that are out there in the left field. I'm talking about the men and women of God who are still attached to the head. The anointing wants to flow through Christ to them and then down to the hems of the garments. And that's every other person. Every part of the body gets hit. If it gets down to the hems of the garment, every part of the body gets hit by the anointing if things are in their proper order. But if the hair is on the floor, the anointing ain't hitting it and it can't give no anointing to the rest of the body body but if it's in its proper order then the oil flows all the way through and here's a good preaching point for you when the woman with the issue of the blood for 12 years was reaching out what she grabbed frank because you referenced it this morning the hem of his robe malachi 4 2 says the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings the word wings there is seat seat which references the edge of the garment the edge of the prayer shawl which represents the promises of god she reached out she was grabbing the wing of his robe she was grabbing the son of righteousness wings because she knew that there was healing she got a word she held on to it and she acted on it and it resulted in her healing and recovery after 12 years every doctor couldn't do nothing for her she was abused she was used she was broke she was busted she was disgusted but she got a hold of a word thanked god for it acted on it and grabbed a hold of it and guess what she got healing and that's a word to some of you i don't care how long you've been dealing with something and when i say i don't care i don't mean i don't emphasize with your pain and your agony and your suffering i mean that i don't care 30 years doesn't mean a difference to 30 days when god's ready to move and you're ready to appropriate that faith in your life it can happen in that moment because god is that good amen you can preach that a long long time but we'll move on for the sake. The next word is fullness, that everyone is included in the body. Everyone. The anointing isn't leaving out the left pinky. I held up my right pinky. The anointing isn't leaving out the left pinky. The anointing is including every single part of the body of which you are a member if you are in Christ. You are a member, and the anointing wants to flow through you. And you could be the hem or the edge or the portion that the, someone in need reaches out and grabs a hold of. See, Uzzah reached out to touch the ark to steady it. And a place that should have brought life, it brought death. The ark of the covenant, the presence of God, a place that should have brought life, brought death. The woman reached out and grabbed the presence of God. Jesus, the literal ark of the covenant. In Him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Word is there. The Spirit is there. The Father is in accordance with Him. The fullness, the modern ark of the covenant. She grabs it and she gets life. Why? He was trying to fix something and it was out of order. She was trying to grab a hold of something. We come into church a lot of times and we try to fix God. We try to fix God. 
And we do that through religion and through our conventions and through our programs and through our systems. And when, therefore, what happens is because we try to fix God. I preached this to you when I first got here. David, he knew better. Instead of following Scripture and transporting the ark the way that God said do it, he copied the Philistines who sent the ark back on a cart with new oxen. And what David do, he was trying to transport it on a cart with new oxen. He was following the Philistines the way of the world and wasn't following what God said. So then Uzzah became a casualty. If we try to fix God and operate according to the world and modernize our churches so that it reflects the world, so that it becomes more hip and conventional and easy to come into, then what happens? A place that should bring life brings death and people get killed spiritually. So that's fullness. And then, of course, you have from there the flow, and we've already covered that. So you can have filling, fullness, flow. And then we move into the realm of favor. And I'm bringing it to a conclusion, guys, I promise. We come into favor. And he says this, he says that it's like the dew upon Mount Hermon. Proverbs 19, verse 12. Proverbs 19, verse 12 says this. It says that the roaring, the wrath of the king is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like the dew upon the grass. The roaring of the king, or the wrath of the king is like a roaring of a lion, but his favor is like the dew upon the grass. And so when he's talking about the dew upon Mount Hermon, See, what we don't realize is people keep this trajectory going. When he's talking about the dew upon the grass, he's talking about the unity. He keeps coming back to the unity. He's talking about the unity. In this place of unity, there's favor. And favor is unmerited blessing. A lot of times we separate ourselves from experiencing the blessing of God because of disunity. Paul says this, he says, Know ye not that at that time you were strangers from the covenant of Israel. You were strangers from the heirs of the promise. You were outside. You were Gentiles according to the flesh. You were strangers from the promise and foreigners to the covenant of Israel. You were outside of that. But then he goes into the conversation about God, Christ bringing us back and bringing us near. The point is this. If you want the blessing and the merit of God, all of that unmerited favor, all of that righteousness, all of that goodness that God wants to pour out on you, and you're not experiencing that in your life, one reason could be that you're in a state of disunity. That's why he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you come to the altar to offer your gift, and there you remember that your brother has ought or something against you, leave it and go be reconciled. doesn't mean be best friends. It means be reconciled. It means bring peace back into the relationship. Love them, bless them, pray for them. Be reconciled. Then come back and offer your gift. There is favor and blessing in that place of unity. And then the last point is the point forever. And it says, for there the Lord commanded his blessing, even life forevermore. And a lot of people will say, well, he's talking about the dew that descends upon Mount, the mountains of Zion. And they say, well, Mount Zion's the capital. That's where the Lord commanded his blessing. That's not what the psalm is saying. What the psalm is saying is it's again referencing how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He's saying there, there, in that place of unity, that's where the Lord commanded his blessing. Even life forevermore. Life more abundantly. Life forevermore. There is a perpetual life. And when I say life, I'm not just talking about eternity. I'm not just talking about heaven. I'm talking about life right now. 
Some people are just existing in a perpetual state of death, and God doesn't want that. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have prosperity in your spiritual, your mental, your physical, your social, and your financial realm. God wants you to have life. He wants you to have blessing. He wants you to have favor, and He wants you to have it now. Heaven on earth, in Jesus' name. 